This episode of Converge with my guest, Tony Stubblebein, is sponsored by WeaveWriter. WeaveWriter empowers you to write every day, tell better stories, and make every word count through the power of habit. For more information, check out WeaveWriter.com. Converge is my chance to connect with creatives who make really interesting things, and when they can, profit from those things, often in ways that might surprise you. My background as a photographer and author gets me in conversations with visual storytellers and writers, but also musicians, actors, business and thought leaders, basically people who work very hard, not just to make a buck, but also to make a point. The invitation is to understand a little more of the context that surrounds their work, and hopefully discover a fresh perspective that might inspire something new around the value you're making in the world. Ever since I was a little kid, I have had big ideas. I've wanted to go someplace that was way beyond what I thought I could pull off on my own. But what was amazing to me wasn't that I had the picture in my head or I was even willing to go for it. It was that my success or failure from A to B usually had very little to do with A or B. It had to do with the middle space, the hard work in between, the habits that were going on when I was trying to get there. Well, our guest today is Tony Stubblebine, and Tony is the CEO and founder of a place called Lyft.do, and Lyft is incredible. It has helped literally millions of people achieve their goals through habit, through disciplines, through a methodology and a process of getting to where they want to go and getting very, very serious about it. So as you listen today, this isn't just going to be about incredible achievements, although Tony has had plenty of them. It's going to be about how you actually might find your way to your achievements. You never hear people say mindset change. It feels so fixed. And the reality is, is it's not. It's not totally fixed. What you need to change it is often just a small amount of success. I'm your host, Dane Sanders, and I want to welcome you to Converge. Tony, welcome to Converge. Hey, Dane. Thank you so much for having me. I, uh, I've been a fan from afar, and uh, we've got to know each other in the last few months as I've had a chance to be a coach for you over at Lyft, and I was so thrilled that you're willing to jump on this conversation. Um, and and I, <laughs> I love, are you in San Francisco today? Where are you? I am in San Francisco, yes. I, I can hear, the, is it raining? Yes. Yeah. I can, it's, there's something about like the sounds of cabs or cars honking in, in any big city, but especially in, uh, in cities where, like San Francisco, uh, it sounds different than uh, horns on a on a normal sunny day. So I love that in the background. It's great ambient. Thank you for that. Well, you know, anything to make this podcast interesting. <laughs> I think without the without the cabs, all we were going to talk about was how to how to help people become superhuman. So uh, th- thank you, cabs. The uh, your history is pretty remarkable. You started at Mastercard. You moved on to O'Reilly. Odeo, Wasabi, you had your own bootstrapped with a company with Crowdvine, and now you're with Lyft. And Lyft has an amazing starting point. You were funded by an incubator called Obvious. Can you talk a little bit about that experience? Well, you know, there's this, it's the first company I've started that had investors. And, you know, a lot of people always wonder, how do you get investors, right? Like, you know, tell me the trick. And like a lot of things I'll talk about today, the trick is not an overnight, you know, you don't get a, you don't snap your fingers and have investors. My very, the very first startup I worked at, Odeo, is um, what 
Twitter spun out of. So my boss at Odeo is one of the Twitter founders. And just by keeping in touch with him, one day I was telling him my idea and he had left Twitter and he was thinking about starting an incubator and he was like, perfect timing. Why don't we take your idea and put it into my incubator? And so on the one hand, I raised money for Lyft originally over a coffee. Uh, but on the other hand, it took me 10 years of working at startups before I was in a position where, you know, I had former coworkers that wanted to invest. And so Obvious was really interested in, you know, building great products that help the world. And Evan Williams, the Twitter founder, my former boss, and now one of my major major investors, has been super active in, in designing Lyft. I often call him my co-designer. Hmm. I know it's funny when I didn't know you yet and was just getting to know you through, you know, as everyone gets to know folks like you through the online world, you approach the conversation with a disproportionate passion towards what this startup is. Like I make up in my head that, you know, MasterCard is pretty cool um, and uh, O'Reilly is really cool and all these things you've been a part of. But the way you talked about habit and how that could concretely change people's lives uh, it struck me as as different. Talk a little bit about why, what's so special about Lyft? Well, yeah, I think there's a maturation process for me, and probably a lot of people go through it. And when I graduated from college, like all I cared about was getting a job that you know paid me pretty well. And I was sort of like amazed to suddenly have like a salary and I could buy the things I wanted to buy. And then I would say my entire career after that was spent trying to find something that I felt like was closer to my real passions and felt like it had a real impact on the world. It was sort of like a Maslow's hierarchy. You know, as soon as the rent was paid, it dawned on me like, well, you know, I should do something that really matters to me. And, you know, I was kind of winding down my last company feeling like I'd built something that was profitable, but it wasn't what I wanted to spend my life's work to you know, the rest of my life working on. And Lyft was just my answer to that question for myself. What should my life's work be? I want to bring, I want to personally, I want to be involved in that for the rest of my life. And then in working through bringing those concepts to the rest of the world, I just find like the job satisfaction of, you know, I, I get into work, I open my email and someone is telling me that we changed their life, right? Like I've never had that job satisfaction anywhere else. And it's really the amazing, the amazing part of running Lyft for me is the sort of the gratitude that, you know, flows, flows in our direction. It's interesting as you're talking, uh, um, I'm reminded of one of Tim Ferriss's uh, podcasts. I know he's someone who has spent some time on around what you're doing and, and his whole life really seems to revolve around this, uh, this idea of hacking excellence and uh -huh. and uh being willing to be a, a human guinea pig to get where he wants to go and of course he's had he's popularized if he didn't kind of create this idea for a lot of folks but he's popularized this idea that that's actually attainable that if you take excellence and chunk it down to its kind of bite-sized chunks and especially when you can find efficiencies where you can kind of you know jump spaces create a dynamic move that you know skips some steps and often means like some different route entirely that you can get a, a whole new reality for yourself. And I'm, I'm wondering, number one, am I reading that right in terms of what, what's going on at Lyft? And number two, if I am, what are some examples where, you know, when you get those emails uh, where people have said, 
No kidding, Tony. This was impossible, like not even close to within reach. And with a methodical approach to habit, they found a new world for themselves. Yeah, let me start by breaking down the what you said about Tim Ferriss. The the academic term is deliberate practice. It's like your improvement comes from two things. One, you you have to put in the practice. We're not just having epiphanies and then being, you know, being able to play a guitar like Jimi Hendrix, right? There's some practice along the way. But the deliberate part, in what method do you practice? What type of coaching do you have along the way? And so you can think of those as two levers. The practice is about putting in the work. The deliberate part is about how smart you are about what work you do. I, I love how you're, you're articulating that really elegantly. And by making that distinction, it also kind of interrupts the popular myth. You know, Tim is fair, famous for four-hour everything, right? So, yeah. you know, how can you how can you do the least amount of work to get the most amount of return, which is in a, in a sense a kind of a comic book version of what he's up to. But anyone who spends just a few moments looking at how he actually spends his life and the amount of productivity he has, it isn't because he's taking a shortcut. It's, taking, it's because he's taking a smart cut. Yeah. In my experience, people who want leisure are people that are sort of frustrated with the work that they're doing. And then once you become kind of superhuman in, the, in your productivity, or at least compared to your peers, it just becomes sort of addictive. And so as I watch people really practice it's pretty rare to see their ambition dwindle. They're, they're never satisfied. And you, know, you asked for a Lyft story. The first one that popped into my head, this guy, Robin, emailed us and he said, guys, I'm so grateful. I just lost 10 pounds the last couple of months. And all I was doing was using Lyft to hold me accountable to eating a, a low-carb lunch every day. So like, people think diets are so hard, but a lot of times you can just carve out one thing that you're doing and do it better. And suddenly you kind of reverse, you know, he reversed his weight gain down to a weight loss and he lost a bunch of weight and he was really happy about it. But the thing he said after is what blew my mind is he said, now that I've lost 10 pounds, I'm learning Italian and Vietnamese and I'm going to travel the world. And I, like, I read this and I thought, what the hell does losing weight have to do with traveling the world, right? And so here's someone who is kind of, maybe stuck because his top goal, he wasn't making any progress and he wasn't willing to even address any of his other goals until he made progress on that first goal. But the second he solved the first goal, he was just like unleashed on the world. The Vietnamese and Italian, like who learns those two languages together? I mean, he's really going to travel the world, but he's not just doing a rail railroad trips around Europe. You know, if we get into some talking about behavior design, a lot of people think about it solely in terms of, you know, the carrot and the stick, you know, positive reinforcement and punishment negative. But there's also something that we see over and over again, which we sort of just call belief change, right? It's the, once you have some success, you start to believe that you can have more success. It's funny, when you talk about belief change, one way that I have talked about it historically is mindset, but I actually like the way you're framing it better because it, it's more direct. It's more to the point of if I can shift a belief about the what I think is possible, then – and you, you even use this phrase – I've seen you use phrases like you know human potential or possibility. Like It seems like the idea of how I – what I see as available to me really has a radical impact on what I take a risk on, what I go for. Would you say there's a correlation there? 
Yeah, I mean, for sure. And I say belief change normally because I want to include the word change. But you never hear people call say mindset change. It feels so fixed. And the reality is, is it's not, right? It's not totally fixed. What you need to change it is often just a small amount of success. And you know that, that's why I end up saying belief change, right? It's like a little bit of belief change kind of unblocks you. It's like, it's amazing how much self-censorship must be going on for most people. I mean, certainly including me, you know, belief change, you could say also confidence, right? When you're more confident, you're less likely to censor yourself. You're more likely to go out and at least try. You know, the, the folks that are listening to this Converge podcast where it's about the business of creativity or people who are making things and want to make a living from that stuff or, or maybe even like make a point from that stuff. They're trying to have things shift. As I'm guessing as they're hearing this, if they're hearing it with the same ears I have, I'm thinking that there are implications on my work. So if I am making something, uh, let's say a product or I'm putting together something like an event or I'm. Uh, even selling, say, a service that comes out of my talent or skill or strength. Help, help connect the dots. And I, I have a hunch it's kind of obvious for you, but help connect the dots for the folks at home who are, who are thinking, okay, like there's, I'm smelling some opportunity here that if I could change a couple core key habits, that could make a big difference in either the creativity side of what I'm doing or the distribution, like the selling, the commerce side of what I'm doing. Like, like right. I guess, like, on a related, maybe this is a tangent, but I, I want to be direct. Like, I find that when I floss my teeth more regularly, I tend to get a lot more done in my day. Like, it's kind of weird, these these connections. And, and it, there might, it might be a false sense of, like, there's a, there, there's a relatedness, but there's not really a correlation here. Talk a little bit about that category of what, what the impact of habit and discipline can have on creativity and commerce. I'm like you because I often try to focus on improving my morning because I, I watch the effects of um, improvement in my morning kind of ripple out throughout the day. But let me back up one step with a really simple self-assessment. If you look at your business and your own kind of performance as the, as the leader of that business, I most often see people fall into one of two categories. Either their performance is hampered by a lack of focus, so a sort of, sort of scatterbrained or it's hampered by avoidance, right? It's the, the creative who does no marketing, right? And knows they should be doing marketing, but it's just never doing any of that. And so what productivity people talk about for, for that is how do you set up your mornings? And that setting up of your mornings ends up being really simple habits. And I use Lyft to drill myself on those habits. So one, don't check my email first thing. And then the second is... If you can get yourself out of bed with a clear head, the second is to set priorities for your day. You know, most people have a to-do list, but they don't prioritize it. And then if they do prioritize it, they're not very good at, at sticking to it. And so just those two habits, you know, avoiding the things that trip you up and trigger you early in the morning, and then getting to a point where you can actually um, set the priorities. And for me, that's 80% of having an impactful day yeah. is that I actually know what my priorities are. Then um, for the other people, for the people that are, are avoiding, I mean, often they're avoiding it because they don't, they don't know. The but thing. you know what? You are your own bad employee. 
And uh, you're like, well, it doesn't feel authentic. You know, I don't want to be a, a fake. Right. And so you're just like refusing to do the thing that actually allows your business to, to succeed. And uh, I, there's sort of two ways of tackling it. The direct way would just be say like, OK, I know I have to do this. Let me start small and build and you know build it up over time. The whole thing that's tripping you up is that you're not comfortable with it. And so it's just a matter of chopping it down, making it smaller and smaller and smaller until you can actually move forward. The other way I've seen people tackle this, and this guy seem a little woo-woo, but I'm a big believer in it, is through meditation. Like the whole trick to getting into meditation is to accept that there's no wrong way to do it, that your mind will wander. And uh, all you have to do is notice when that happens. When I pitch meditation, I, I try to be really focused on the pragmatic aspects of it. I'm, you know, I love sports. I love competition. I love entrepreneurship. Like I'm like the opposite, you know, of the 70s. And for me, meditation is, is just like, well, to really sum it up, we're writing a book on meditation right now. And we, we titled it The Strongest Mind in the Room. Right. It's it perfect. just like it's perfect. That's right. It's like the opposite of any woo woo positioning you've ever heard, because that's not how I think of it. Every goal that I have, it benefits from meditation. You know, my top goals are outside of work are probably exercise related. And you know, even just dealing with the pain of training or racing is an awareness and control of focus exercise getting enough done in my day that I have time to go exercise. That's about being present throughout my day. Um, everything that I do at work, the quality of it is affected by my presence during that moment. And that, you know, that is improved through meditation. Aside from, you know, sleeping and eating, I can't think of anything else that is better. You know, it's basically the number one thing that I've done in addition to the basics, right, of sleeping and eating. So I, I know I'm speaking for some people at home when they're saying, okay, that's all great. And I've had my quick starts to get after things like meditation or weight loss or uh, drink more water or writing, you know, writing something that's been really core in my life. I, I call that a core human technology that's not likely going to be overcome by the, the digital revolution anytime soon, the, the beginning idea of the writing part. Um, but all of that said, Inevitably, people come across, you know, bad days. Maybe they they break their streak of their habits, or when you hit a wall, when you screw up, when you don't, you you break your own integrity with yourself, with what you want to go do. How do you recover quickly so you can get back on the saddle? This is a great question, uh, and there's a couple of people that have interesting things to say about it. So another coach that I work with, what he says is, you know, I asked him once, if you don't have anything to talk to a client about, you know, if you don't have an agenda, what do you ask? And he, he says, well, I always just ask what's working. You'd ask yourself, okay, what are the habits that really seem key to making this happen? So if I'm hearing you right on the days when humans screw up, cause humans screw up, the most resourceful thing I could do is to, in a sense, kind of reverse engineer the screw up and say what contributed to the phenomenon as opposed, like, because, you know, where I get pulled in, and I, and I know I'm speaking for other people when I say this, is this sense of like, no, no, it took so much grit and go for it to get into my my streak that I just feel so defeated. And I, you can get lost in, like, shame and guilt and, like, self-talk that, and I, I guess Gretchen would say there's some personalities that don't even think about it and they just move on. But 
I'm not one of those guys. Like I, <laughs> I get hung up on it. And it seems like for me, the, the trick is to figure out how quickly I can go through a process of just getting over it. Like I can't change that I didn't wake up at five, but I also don't want to burn my whole day. Like how can I get my head straight as quickly as possible? But I, I don't know if that's the best strategy. Does that question make sense? It makes perfect sense. It's super common. And I, you know, I would call this shame, like the guilt is actually, you know, it's a bad habit that you would want, like you wish didn't exist. A lot of times when it comes to, you know, kind of stopping a behavior that you don't want, rather than just, you know, squelching it all together, what you should look for is an alternative. We call this replacement habits. I can't make that shame go away, but I can give you something to balance it. And that balance is the strategy of, you know, reverse engineering it. Like you've been getting up on time, day after day after day, what were you doing on those days that you didn't do last night? Let's do those again today, you know, tonight so that you can get up at the, for you, get up at the right time tomorrow. Yeah. Does that make sense? Oh yeah. Perfect. Well, okay. Last question. Cause I, well, maybe not last cause I, I haven't too much fun with these questions. What do you think about coaching? And what I mean by that, and I, I'm saying this, it's a little loaded cause I'm a coach for you on Lyft. <laughs> so, but I also recognize that Folks at home, they have a full spectrum of ideas of what that means. Like there's the idea of a professional athlete, for example, not having a coach is just ridiculous. Like no one would ever consider, or like a, an Olympic athlete going to the Olympics and not having a coach, forget it. But yet in business, especially for entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, artistpreneurs, these people who are, or maybe they're not working for themselves, they're working for somebody else, but they really, they want performance. They really want to hit it out of the park. What have you noticed in all of your work with coaching that has made a difference for for the end user? Well, I mean, first of all, the reason most of us don't have coaches and only like the top entrepreneurs and top athletes that have coaches is because it's too freaking expensive, right? And so it is a good question for me because this is one of the things that Lyft is most working on, is working on hardest, is kind of taking the friction out of, of having a coach and one of the things is to bring the price way down. And so recently, we've opened up a program, we'll call it our Open Coaching Program, where um, anyone can sign up to be a coach on Lyft, and you know, we'll offer those coaches to Lyft users, and you know, they're out offering themselves as coaches to the rest of the world, and kind of the standard price is $15 a week. You know, compare that to $250 for an hour-long session with, with most coaches, or often more. So what have we seen? You know, what is the value of the coaching? So we have coaches on Lyft doing uh, three things. They're answering questions. Uh, people ask a lot of questions and you know, that's the thing where they don't know the intelligent thing to do in that moment and having a resource where people can fill you in. We have coaches putting together, um, we call these plans, but something that, Dane, that you had done on Lyft is you had, gave writing tips every day for a month. That's essentially a plan. Uh, for you know, someone who wants to be kind of have a daily inspiration for what they're going to write, and then the third is one-on-one -on -one coaching, where there's a dedicated coach kind of looking over your shoulder, watching your patterns, answering your questions, challenging you to do it better and smarter. But for me, the big thing is the intelligence that a coach can kind of can give you, so that you're not always just working harder; you can work smarter sometimes. What are the smart cuts? I think that's the the word that I'm walking on this podcast. I'll be saying for the next, you know, for next week. You know, I, I wrote it down too because I said it by mistake, but I'm glad I did because it, it <laughs> <laughs> uh, that distinction of 
Because I think for a lot of, yeah, I was an athlete uh, in college and growing up, and but after, I don't, I don't know when, I, like, I guess in those days, I had a coach built in, like, that I wasn't, in a sense, paying for, and uh, for whatever reason, I guess I just, I, I probably just had a blind spot to how valuable that uh, intellect or insight really was, and then post that era, you know, I've, you know, I actually did play professionally briefly in, uh, overseas, but... But Wait, what sport are we talking about? I, I played uh, men's volleyball. And then when that era came to an end and now I'm just working hard in life, it's interesting how I can default to, well, just be Rudy, right? Just work hard. And that was the magic sauce that was going to get me to where I want to go. But ironically, it wasn't until I started bringing coaches into my own life that I began to get that extra benefit, that distinct part of the equation that really is the delta that could make a big difference. For sure. Right. It, it is. It, I think when things change and you're not like really told explicitly that they're changing, it just becomes a blind spot in your life. And I have the same experience where the second I left school, as I left the world of being coached, I've been coached, you know, in all my sports teams for for a decade and more than that. It never dawned on me that, oh, here I am, I'm an adult, and no, I don't have a coach anymore. And it really is, I think, only in the last couple of years. Have I had access to coaches? This is like one of the things that we find is interesting as we watch the one-on-one coaching is manage the expectations of people. That having a coach in your life, a one-on-one coach who's really, you know, works with you directly is a new experience. And so we're not always sure what to get out of it. You just kind of have to uh, sign yourself up for you know that sort of rhythm where you could get something pretty practical and pragmatic every time you work with your coach. But then, you know, once a month, once a quarter, maybe once every six months, you could have something just sort of earth shatteringly useful. So, so last few words for folks at home that, that are going like, I, I really want this year to be the difference maker, the catalyst, the thing that launched um, a new era in my, my adult life, professional life, creative life, whatever it is. When you have coffee with that guy, and you, and you can tell they're right, guy or girl, I should say, but they're they're not just like wishful thinking, but they're teed up for for this kind of moment. What do you say to them in your parting shot to really catalyze them to take action? Yeah, I start with really visualizing this as a long term goal. Something I say often is like, you know, I've got good news and I got bad news. Like the good news is that. What you're wanting to do is possible. The bad news is that you're going to have to get off the couch. So, you know, once you're off the couch, then, you know, how do you actually turn some action into success? And, you know, our focus is around the building routine, building momentum towards that routine. And so many people that we work with are paralyzed because they're trying to uh, achieve their entire goal in one day. And it's definitely possible to frame your goal in a way that's too big uh, so that you never have any momentum. And it's basically impossible to frame your goal in a way that's too small, right? And um, because what you really want is to make sure that you make some progress tomorrow. If you make progress tomorrow, it's really easy to expand it to do more the next day and more the day after that and more the day after that. If you consider yourself a failure because, you know, you want to write a book and your goal is to write eight hours tomorrow and you, you like 
sat at your desk for eight hours, but you really only wrote for 30 minutes. And so like, screw the book, right? That's a bad path, obviously. Whereas people who say, okay, you know, maybe I started there. Maybe I had a bad day with a lot of procrastination. Let me make it smaller. Let me make my goal tomorrow be write one page, write one paragraph, write one sentence. We've had a bunch of uh, people that we've coached who were working on writing something really big. And the first thing we did is, is we challenged them on day one. How quickly can you go from sitting at your desk to writing that one sentence? And so they were focused on the thing that gives them momentum. And from there, they grew that into writing a dissertation, writing a book. And, you know, that it all just comes from, from building up that routine and, you know, staying laser focused on it and building up those kind of support systems to make, make sure that you follow through. And, you know, of course, that's what Lyft is about. This was episode 038 of Converge, the Business of Creativity podcast. ConvergePodcast.com is our home where you'll find all our past episodes, our unconference for indie entrepreneurs looking to grow their businesses, and Faster Minds, accountability coaching guaranteed to optimize your mindset, improve your habits, and help you win at the business of creativity. Music today provided by TripleScoopMusic.com. Sound as good as you look. Thanks to Anna Quaza at acreative.co for her audio production. And a special thanks to Tony for being with us. Check out more at coach.me or its former name, lift.do. Finally, I have a small request. Would you consider one friend who you think would benefit from what we're doing here and invite them to join in? You caring enough to do things like that are nods to us that we're doing something right. And it's a really big deal. Reviews on iTunes work great too. So thanks in advance. Thanks for being with us. That's it for now. I'm Dean Sanders. I cannot wait until next time.